John 17, verses 1 to 26, title of the message, Jesus, the Messiah behind the ministry. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the chance to worship you. And Lord, we just echo, Lord, that comment, Father, we want you, Lord, to receive the glory, Lord, in, in you alone. As we're going to see, Lord, in your life, that you always gave glory to the Father, even though Jesus is God and, and was God, and he rightfully deserved the glory. Nevertheless, because of his humility, he gave the glory to the Father. And so, Lord, we want you to receive the glory through our word, Lord, through our study and through our worship, through our lives. So help us, Lord, to learn to do that by seeing the heart of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever eavesdrop? Well, before you answer yes, let me read to you your rights. You do have the right to remain silent. Why? Well, because in our great state of California, one law that we actually do have is that it's against the law to eavesdrop. Penal Code 639 reads the following. Every person who intentionally and without the consent of all parties to a confidential communication by means of an electronic amplifying or recording device eavesdrops upon or records the confidential communication whether the communication is carried on uh, among the parties in the presence of one another or by means of a telegraph. Do we still have those? <laughs> Telephone or other device, notice this, with the exception of a radio. So it's against the law to eavesdrop. The punishment for eavesdropping could be a fine not exceeding $2,500, imprisonment in a county jail, if they're not too full, or, or maybe even state prison. If a person has previously been convicted of a violation of this section in similar penal codes, there's a bunch of them, the person shall be punished by a fine not exceeding $10,000 or maybe imprisonment in a county jail or, or in a state prison or, or both. So, man, we don't mess around in California about these issues. I'm gonna have to talk to Jim, make sure I'm right after that. Now, what does this have to do with our study this evening? Well, tonight we're gonna listen in on Jesus' prayer time with his father. Are we eavesdropping? Well, no, we're not. We've actually been invited into this private conversation. We know this because the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John. He gave him these words that he could write so that we can enter in, so we can listen in on what the Lord was saying to his father, and also so we can learn about him and in his heart. One of the greatest ways to, to see what's on a person's heart is by praying with them, right? Because you're pouring out your heart to God. And Jesus did that. He poured out his heart, his heart to the Father. As he poured out his heart to the, his Father, we're going to see two loud themes that echoes, that echoes from this prayer. And those two themes are, first, Jesus' desire to please the Father, and second, Jesus' love for the believer. So first, in verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus' desire to please the Father. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so Jesus concluded his teaching in chapter 16 with saying, hey, you know, in the world you're gonna have tribulation, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And after he said those things, he immediately lifted up his eyes and began to pray to his father in heaven. If you wanna look at an example for prayer, look at Jesus. He is a great he is the greatest example of, of, of how to pray and what it is to pray. Jesus is often seen getting along with the Father to commune with him, right? 
He would spend time in the wilderness there, communing with the Father, sometimes all night long. Um, but also he's seen just praying throughout the day. And what a good example for, the, you know, for you and I as a believer. Yeah, God does want you to get alone, but the Lord is with you, and, and he wants you to commune with him as you go throughout your day. Jesus saw the Father as not a distant force, but as his personal Father who he can just lift up his eyes just at any moment and just pray to him and, and seek him. And the Lord wants us to remember that as well. Jesus began talking about his hour. He said, Father, the hour has come. Now, Jesus is not talking to God about this hour because God didn't know it, but rather he's talking about it as if they've discussed it often. And they did discuss it often. The hour refers to Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of the world. And Jesus' death on the cross has been planned since before the foundations of the earth. The Bible says Christ is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. The entire Old Testament is his story. It's Jesus' story. It's God's redemptive plan to save man as the Bible pointed towards Jesus and often predicted the fact that he would die on the cross for the sins of the world, that he would die as our substitute, as our sacrifice. During Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, he spoke often about his hour. It's one of John's themes in his book. Jesus spoke about his hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But finally, now his hour had come. In light of this hour, Jesus asked his Father to glorify him. The glory Jesus asked for could refer to the sustaining power to fulfill God's will, the grace to go to the cross, the acceptance of his sacrifice, resurrection from the dead, and his restoration to heaven's glory. Now notice the reason Jesus sought the Father's glory. It was so that he can then in return give God glory. So Jesus wanted God to give him glory. They, on the cross, he could also give the Father's glory. And the cross does glorify the Father. Paul in Corinthians says that the world looks at the cross as foolishness, as weakness. Like, really? Your king died on a cross? But to us, it's the power of God to salvation. To us, it declares to us the wisdom of God. How can a holy God justify sinful man? Well, all other religions say, well, you have to work for it. Well, that compromises the justice of God. How can a just God just pardon you because you do a bunch of good works? No, the only way that God can do it is he also has to remain just. And the way that he has done that is through the cross. Through the cross, God poured out his justice upon Christ. He became our sacrifice. He was judged for our sin, but also through the cross, we can receive grace. And so God in his wisdom sent Christ to the cross. And because Christ went to the cross, sinful man can be justified by a holy God. We see the love of God through the cross. The fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We see the power of God through the cross. The fact that through the cross, the Lord has drawn all men to himself. We see the grace of God through the cross. The fact that you can be saved and your sins can be forgiven. So Jesus said, Father, give me glory. Give me the power to, to do this and, and, and lift me up that I may bring others to you. Verse 2 as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So Jesus looked at his death, resurrection, and ascension as a, as a certainty. I say this because after his resurrection, when he was there with his disciples, 
before he ascended, he said, hey guys, all authority has been given to me in heaven. Matthew 28, 18. Philippians 2, we're told that God has given Jesus a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So the authority and honor has been given to Jesus by the Father. There's no power struggle in heaven. They're not worried about who has the power. But God has given Christ a name that is above every name. And as Peter said, there is no other name in heaven by which, by which men must be saved that is the name of Jesus. And so, and this was all accomplished through the cross. You see, through faith in Jesus, the fact that he was God and the fact that he came and died for us, as I said, we're able to be justified by God. We're able to be declared righteous. The fact that God forgives us of our sins and declares us right in his sight. Through faith, we can have eternal life. Now notice Jesus said, those who have eternal life are given to him by the Father. Salvation is the work of God on the human heart. The cross and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit um, is God's mean by which he gives us to Christ. He, he is the one who does the work on the human heart. Man doesn't save himself, but it's the Father who, who does the work as he has sent the Spirit to, to do the work on our hearts. Verse three, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is much more than just living forever. You see, people are gonna live forever. You know, the moment you created, you're made with an eternal spirit. Despite what the Jehovah's Witness say, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. No, you're made with an eternal spirit. You're made in the image of God, and God is eternal. So you're made with an eternal spirit. So when you die, you're gonna spend eternity somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. Now, believers in Jesus Christ have eternal life in heaven. We have the opportunity to be with the Lord in a place where there's no more suffering, no more pain, right, no more sin. In heaven, you know, if, if, if you die now or eventually it'll be in the new Jerusalem as there at the end of Revelation, we're told that we're gonna live in this, this paradise city of God in resurrected bodies and we're gonna live forever and ever and ever with the Lord. But the Lord gives more insight to eternal life than just the fact that it's a place the Lord said, no, eternal life is a person. It's the fact that we get an opportunity to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Eternal life is a relationship with God. And that's the blessing that we have. You see, we get a chance to know the God of the heavens and the earth. In our day and age, everybody thinks they know God. But unless you're a believer, you can't know God. Because the Bible says you're spiritually discerned. You, you have no ability to you know, communicate to God. And we were once enemies of God, the Bible says, separated by our wicked works. But yet now through Christ, the same God who's able to speak the universe into existence in six days is the one who also you can call your father and you can go to him. And so God has given us eternal life. He's given us a chance through Jesus Christ to know him and to have his wisdom and have him walk with us and teach us and and minister to us and commune with us, like, just as Christ did. Verse four, I've glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Wow, what a great summary of a life in ministry. I have glorified you on earth. If you're looking for a life verse, that's it. I was thinking about that last time. I was like, wow, that's a, that, that's a life verse right there. You know, people often say, well, what's your life verse? Well, I don't know. There you go, John, John uh, 17, four. You don't have to pay me for it. You just praise the Lord for it. Give him the glory, right? <laughs> I have glorified you on earth. Wow. Jesus lived his entire life 
to honor, magnify, and make the Father known. How did he do this? Well, he did it very simply through his words and his actions. That's how he did it. He did it through his words and his actions. In reference to the cross, once again, he looked at it as a certainty. He said that he had finished the work which God had given him to do. Well, we know that the cross was gonna be an, you know, the work that the Lord wanted to do, but yet Christ looked, looked at it as a certainty. Yes, he did have to choose to go to the cross, but nevertheless, he knew that, that he was gonna go to the cross and he was setting his heart and his mind on, on the cross. And so Jesus always had the hope and, and the desire you know, to glorify God. From the youngest age, we see him wanting to do that. At age 12, there we're told in the Gospel of Luke, when his parents couldn't find him, um, they found him in the temple. They were reasoning with the scribes in the temple, and they said, well, we were looking for you. He said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? Interesting enough, around that age, Jew, Jewish boys would often choose their occupation, right? Well, Jesus had chosen his occupation. He was gonna be about his father's business. He was gonna live his life to glorify and please the father. He would also go home and be a carpenter too, like, uh, like Joseph, but nevertheless, he was desiring to be um, glorifying to God. His earthly ministry is all about glorifying God, and this should be our desire as well. Verse five, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so since the cross was a certainty, Jesus prayed for and longed that the Father return him to glory. Jesus prayed that God would give him the glory that he had before the world was. The glory refers to Jesus' rights as God. Now Jesus, even though he would die on the cross and ascend into heaven, he would still remain in his body. He would, he would, you know, he would remain in a glorified body which Revelation says we can see him as a lamb slain. He's gonna still bear the marks and the scars. And so obviously him returning to glory isn't just referring to dismantling his body, but it's referring to giving him the rights that he once had as the second person of the Trinity to sit at the right hand of God. Now a quick note, if Jesus was not the second person of the Trinity as occults teach, he cannot be a good teacher or a prophet of God. The cults will say, oh, no, Jesus is just the son. He's a good prophet. He's a good teacher. And then we have to say, well, then he's not a good prophet or a good teacher. Because Moses said in Deuteronomy, you'll know a true prophet by two things. Number one, he'll speak in line with the truth of God. And number two, he won't pull attention away from God by false miracles, right? He'll, he'll are in false prophecy by claiming things and they don't come to pass. Well, Jesus said that he wants the Father to glorify him. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I do not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And so, if Jesus was not God, he could not ask the Father for glory because God won't glorify anyone but himself. And so, yes, Jesus was God. He ascended into heaven, and now he's sitting at the right hand of God um, as he was um, before he came to earth. Second, now in verses 6 to 26, we see, that we see Jesus' love for the believer. Jesus is gonna pray for believers, specifically you and I. Now, in verses 6 to 19, he talks about the 11 apostles who were there with him. 
And while he talks about these guys specifically, we can still apply it to our life um, as we work through these verses. He said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And so Jesus manifested or revealed the Father to his disciples. John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him to us. That word declared is actually the Greek word to exegete or to, or to um, open up and to reveal. Jesus declared God to mankind. When Jesus was walking on this earth, you can look at him and you can know that that is exactly what God is like. People often have a wrong view of God. They think God is only angry, right? But God is love and, and, and God is gracious. Don't rebuke me after service. No, I'm joking. And so, no, no, God, the, the Bible says God is love and, and he is gracious. People get really offended by that sometimes. But hey, you know what? The Lord is gracious and Jesus is love. He, he pardoned the sinner when they came to him in faith. Yes, he, what, he, he did have a righteous indignation for the religious leaders and the fact that they were hindering people from, you know, coming to the, to the temple and things like that. But it wasn't an outrage, as people think of God, just ready to smite down people. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. He has to judge be, because he's just, but nevertheless, he's loving. And if a person's willing to come to him, as we see throughout the entire Bible, then he's willing to love and forgive them. Jesus in John 14 told his disciples, when you see me, you see the Father. And so they, had, they said, Lord, show us a father. And he says, well, have I been with you so long? When you see me, you see the father. Don't you know for my work's sake and my words? And so by Jesus' words and his works, he declared the father to mankind. The apostles and all believers have been given to Jesus by the father. Well, what's this talking about? Well, it could be a reference to the fact that God, based on his foreknowledge, chose believers in Christ. Another possibility is that the apostles who were previously devout Jews who placed their faith in Yahweh are now commanded and pointed to put their faith in Jesus. And so in a sense, believers are pointed to Jesus by the Father because he has established that through the name of Christ. And there is no other name by which men um, can be saved. And so God has established Christ at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Notice those who who have been given to Jesus by the Father keep his word. So yes, a person is saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It will always produce good works. Saving faith will produce fruit. You know, a person can say, well, I went to seminary. Well, well, that's fine. Has God done a work in your life? Now, ultimately, we're not the, we're, we're not the people who determines whether someone's a Christian or not. Obviously, only God knows the heart. But nevertheless, a person's life should bear fruit if they're a true believer. And and if a person's not keeping the Lord's word and, and walking with him, well, then there's kind of a question mark there. The Lord said, hey, I know those whom the Father has given me because they keep my word. Jesus goes on to explain this further in verses seven and eight. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I've given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So the apostles, in contrast to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, believed that Jesus had come from God and that everything that Jesus was doing was from God. You see, there was a false teaching that was arising among the Jewish, you know, the religious leaders in that Jesus was doing his miracles by the power of Satan. 
And Jesus called this the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He said, why? Mark would go on to give us commentary. He said, because they said that he was, because he said that he was demon-possessed. And so they, they couldn't explain away his miracles and what he was doing. And so they said, yeah, he's doing it by the power of Satan. And, you know, because they were false believers. Jesus said, in contrast to these guys, my followers, my believers believe that everything I'm doing is from the Father. They know that the Father has given, you know, has given me these things and given me these words and they have received my words. They believe that I came forth from God. They believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The word Messiah is the same word as Christ. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. It means anointed one. And these guys believe that Jesus was the one that the scriptures had predicted in the Old Testament. The one whom God will pour out his spirit upon without measure. The fact that he would do these works and he would do these miracles. All these things were received by the apostles. And the Lord was thankful and he was, he was praying for them about that. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So now this, this verse, we need to make sure we don't misunderstand it. Often people think this, see this verse and think, wait a second, so what, Jesus doesn't care about the world? He doesn't love the world? Well, obviously that's not what he's saying. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. Right? Also, Jesus is seen as being a shepherd who had compassion on the multitudes. It says there, as he saw these people, even though they were seeking him sometimes just for bread, the Lord saw them as a sheep without a shepherd, and he, had, he, he groaned for them. He had compassion on them. He wanted people to come to him. He wanted all to be saved. But Jesus' focus in these verses is to make supplication or to make a specific prayer for his apostles, for believers. Jesus could not have prayed this prayer for unbelievers because this prayer right here can't apply to unbelievers. As you read on, you see why. Jesus is going to pray that these believers would be kept by God's power. Jesus would pray that God would keep them from the evil one. Jesus would pray that God would bless them with joy. Jesus would pray that God would sanctify them through his word. Jesus would pray that God would bless them and send them into the world. So these things can't apply to an unbeliever, a person who doesn't have faith in Jesus. And so that's why Jesus is praying specifically for these guys because he has specific things that he's going to go on and pray for. Let's work through these. First in verse 11, he says, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus' prayer here is that the Father would keep them in his name. Now, this isn't talking about the fact that these guys would be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous and never have any problems after Jesus would die. Of course not, because when you read the book of Acts, you see they did face opposition. The enemy was gonna attack because they were gonna step out and do the work of God. The apostle James would actually be beheaded in chapter 12. And so whatever the Lord meant by keep in your name, he's not talking about keeping them from all physical harm. Rather, we see that the Lord would give them grace despite opposition. And that's exactly what the Lord did. The Lord gave them grace to continue to press forward and fulfill the mission that he called them to do. Right off the bat, they were preaching in the temple. The Pharisees got mad about it. So what they do, they beat, you know, 
um, Peter, James, and, and you know, and, and John was, you know, the, the, he, you know, they beat the apostles, and these guys came back in Acts chapter four, and the, the church was praying, and they came in there and they described what happened and what they do. They went straight to the scriptures and they began praying for the Lord, and the Lord, the Bible says, filled that place with the Spirit. It, the walls shook and they were filled with boldness, and they went back out to preach the gospel. So the Lord did a great work of keeping them. The fact that. You know, the Lord was with them. He was going to sustain them. He was going to fulfill the mission that he did, you know, that, that, you know, that he started. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Peter went on later on and wrote the same thing to persecuted believers. The church was scattered during the time uh, that Peter was writing his first epistle. And he wrote to them and talked to them about this keeping power of God. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, notice this, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so you and I are kept by the power of God as we walk with him. He's given us sufficient grace to walk and Sometimes we'll face situations where we can't do it, but the Lord will give us the grace sufficient to press forward and, and to glorify him. Now the question arises, what about Judas, right? Wasn't he with Jesus? Well, yeah, Judas was a non-believer and God foreknew that one would betray Jesus, so he predicted it through his prophets and Judas chose to betray Jesus and therefore he became the fulfillment of that prophecy. So, you know, God didn't make Judas betray Jesus. He foresaw that one would betray Jesus and Judas by his own choice chose to reject Jesus and therefore he became the fulfillment to that prophecy. That prophecy. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so Jesus was speaking these words that believers would have joy in themselves. The Lord wants our lives to be joyful. And the way that he has established our lives to be joyful is by hearing his word and by heeding his word. You know, the world says, hey, if you want to be joyful, here's how we think you do that. And the Lord says, nope, the way you're joyful is by hearing my word, by heeding my word, by obeying them. Uh, verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, but sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so the believer in Jesus Christ is not of the world, but we're in the world. The world has been used a number of different ways in the Bible. There's the world in general, right? The earth that we live in. There's the world as it refers to all people. God so loved the world. But also there's the term world that's referred to as the fallen world system, that which is ruled over by Satan. The world is under the sway of the wicked one. They're ensnared by the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the Bible says that we've been delivered from that world system. We've been delivered from the power of Satan and placed into the kingdom of light. And because of that, we're different than the world now. We stand out and the world hates people who are different. It wants to conform you into its mold. And that's why Paul said, do not be conformed, right, to the world, but be conformed to the image of Christ. 
in Romans 12. And we do that by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Based on this hostility, Jesus prayed that the Father would keep believers while we're in the world. Notice he didn't didn't pray that God would take us out of the world, but he prayed that we'd be kept from Satan and from his his wicked schemes. That the Lord would keep us here, but yet keep us safe. Well, how do we remain in the Lord, you know, and, and walking with the Lord? Well, verse 17 says, the way that we, we remain separate or sanctified is by taking heed to his truth. His word is truth. The word truth means telling it like it is. That's what it is, telling it like it is. The world is an error. They have diluted the truth. And really the opposite of truth is lies. And the world is a bunch of lies. And they want to come to you and they say, hey, if you, you know, here it is. Here's how you're, you know, you're happy. Here's how you live. And really, when you think about it, they're lies. They're far away from the truth. They're not telling it like it is, but rather the word is truth. It keeps us sanctified. It keeps us walking with the Lord. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so rather than the believers being isolated, the Lord kept us in the world that we could infiltrate the world and affect it. The apostles and believers are to take this gospel message to all mankind. We've been given a great commission. He didn't say, hey, go into a monastery. He said, no, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're to be salt and light to a dark and decaying world. And for their saints, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And so Jesus was gonna be set apart on the cross that you and I would have the power and the message to go out and to change lives. He went to the cross that you and I would have the power and the message to go out and change lives. We've been given a life-changing message, the message of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Now Jesus goes on and prays for you and I specifically. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so the church age is an age in which the word goes out. And Jesus believed the message you know, he said, hey, people are gonna get saved and I'm gonna pray for them right now before the message even goes out. That, you know, this is you and I. We receive Christ through the message. If you think about it, it went from the apostles and it scattered through people and eventually it made it here to you and I. We heard the gospel and believed and the Lord is praying for us. What's he praying for us? Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you sent me, that you have sent me, and, lo- and have loved them as you have loved me. And so very simply, Jesus' prayer for the believer, for all believers, is that we would be one. One in what sense? Well, one in purpose and mission. That we'd be mission-minded to take this word out throughout the whole world. That people, through his word, would be saved. The ones that he is praying for. This is really our purpose as a church, as the church universal, is to take the gospel throughout the whole world. Yes, God does have unique styles. Think about the apostles. They were all unique. You know, read the way they wrote. I mean, John, read his epistle versus Peter's epistle. Or Matthew, the way he wrote to Jews versus the way John would write. 
They were all unique, had different styles. They're, you know, and maybe even at times when they went to different groups, their methods were different. But nevertheless, their message was all the same. They were preaching the gospel. And this shows us as a church that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Our focus needs to be the gospel. It's greater than ourselves. It's greater than our opinions. It's greater than our styles. It's the power of God to salvation. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you gave me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus prayed that you and I would be with him where he is, that we might see him in his glory. And so if, if it's, you know, at the time of the rapture, then the Lord is gonna come back for us and take us to heaven, the place that he's been preparing for us. And we're gonna see him in, in his glory there. It could be before the rapture as we breathe our last breath here on earth, but we wake up in heaven and see him in glory. But the Lord prayed that you and I would be with him and we are gonna be with him one day through our faith in Jesus Christ. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me uh, may be in them, and I in them. And so Jesus ends this prayer with pleading with the righteous Father. God is righteous. He will do what is absolutely right and just. And Jesus prayed that those who believe in him may have the love of God in them and Christ in them. And God fulfilled that prayer. Through the cross of Christ and our faith in Jesus, God has declared us righteous. Also, the Bible says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You and I have been sealed for the day of redemption. And one day, this is our hope as believers, despite all the trials and tribulations, despite all the changes in our world, the greatest hope that we have is one day in our flesh, as Job said, we will see the glorified God face to face. We'll see Jesus face to face. That's our hope. Job, in the midst of his suffering, said, hey, this is my hope that I'm gonna see God. And that's our hope as believers through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen?